So hey everyone, it's Daniel. Welcome to Big Little Explorer, a podcast developed by graduate students to promote scientific literacy and youth. I'm super excited to interview our guest today, Dr. Erica Tavares. Uh, Erica is a research associate at SickKids who has been in molecular biology and genetics research for over a decade. She initially began her career studying the evolution of birth, um, but is currently working on projects focused on studying eye diseases in children. So with that being said, let's get exploring and welcome Erica. Um, so I guess Thank one you. question that is on everyone's mind is, uh, what has been your career trajectory like? Um, kind of starting okay. off looking at birds and then going um, into, yes. into human biology. Um, so could, if you hey, could yeah. give us an overview of your career. Uh, I, ch- I made my choices, yeah. So like it, when I was in high school, like, yeah, I love it to study. Like, I know that's not the things that most students say, but I like it to study. I like, it. I like to, to discover new things, and I had to choose a career. So I was always thinking about doing things that I could continue to study and learn more things. I had this kind of thirsty for knowledge to understand things, and I like it to... to so so I, I early on decided that I wanted to do something in science, so I was between astronomy or biology. Reason why I like those two things, I like maths and I like also reading a lot. So I was feeling afraid that if I chose a path to mathematical, <laughs> I wouldn't read so much for my main thing. And if I had chosen a thing that like is something like a, like a law school or something like a, 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 some career that I had a lot of reading, I wouldn't do getting contact with math anymore that often. So I decided to, that biology was really something in between. I could actually have a lot of exposure to, to those both, both things and still like a, it would accomplish a lot of the, the things that I wanted to do science. Like uh, astronomy in Brazil, like I'm Brazilian, was more challenging because doesn't have a big like telescopes in Brazil. So like I thought, okay, if I choose the path, I'll change like in the country and I didn't, thought about that back then I did change countries but like I didn't I was not planning my life based on that <laughs> so I chose biology and also as the boom of the early attempts to do the human genome so that was on the news a lot and like a genetics was something I was interested like early on even before starting my career path so I chose biology because I wanted to to go into the realm of like you knowing the general biology like of, of things like I wanted to do electro biology genetics in Brazil is different here like you choose a career early on so you choose med school vet school or like whatever you choose you choose when you're 17 16 when you enter in the university it's not like here you do a pre-med or something uh, so I wanted to do biology that was the career path I chose so then uh, I spent four years in the university and there I always had like a lot of interesting DNA genetics was the things that I was like more into. So my first like a job experiences was with physiology, but it was I like it, but I always wanted to go to more molecular. So then my second like a job experience was more like into evolution in genetics. So I was studying bird evolution through DNA. And I love it. Like I, I really like evolution too. I really love evolution and that was really nice for me. What would you, so I know you're in the field of molecular biology and genetics right now, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, could you just describe what molecular biology is and what genetics is? Um, yes. Kind of uh-huh. what is the field about? 
Yeah, so right now, like I'm working on uh, trying to identify genetic causes of uh, retinal dystrophies. So the person uh, that I work for, Dr. Elise Hill, she's an ophthalmologist, and she studies inherited genetical diseases, like in retina. So she knows the cases are genetic because either it's familiar or because they're by, by their eyes, like it's affecting both eyes. So things like that, they believe it's probably genetic, maybe them. So there is a lot of genes already known for those diseases and the, the, the standard of care is to actually send the patients to get tested for those genes, but very often they don't get a diagnosis to that. That could be caused by other genes. And then we bring to the lab and we do, uh, they study their genome to see if we can find what can be the disease causing they have. And very often it's a novel gene disease where you, you come up with more than one option sometimes on their mutations. And you have to try to test in the lab, do experiments to see if that is, would be like the right gene or not before you publish, right? Before you are the man. So if you get to identify a novel gene, it benefits other people because then those genes go to that panel where they test patients they're negative for. And therefore like that one patient helped to identify a lot of other cases. So that's how this field goes. Very, very cool. Um, so I know you mentioned you came to Canada from Brazil as well. Yes. Um, so what was what was the reason that made you want to come to Canada from Brazil? In a way, it was a little by chance. So I was doing my master's of Fiji in evolution of birds through DNA, trying to see if species are more associated to another one. And one of the greatest scientists on that field is Dr. Alan Baker. He passed away now, but he's the he was back then the curator of the Rome the Royal Ontario Museum. And he uh, had like amazing research on that. So I asked him if I could do part of my PhD with him. It's a training that Brazil allows you to do. They give you a grant that you can use to do conferences internationally, or you can go to stay in a lab for a while to learn some new techniques. So I came to work for him at the end of my PhD, kind of third year out of the four years. And uh, we like got a lot of things uh, working and we got a paper together. So he invited me to do a postdoc with him for three years. That was the DNA barcoding, my next project. So that's how I came to live. He was by chance. And then my husband came with me and he's a lighting designer. And then what happened is that his career started to get really well here. <laughs> By the time we finished the three years, like it was, we are like we didn't have anything back in Brazil when we had jobs here. So <laughs> we ended up staying. And then I was looking for another position. And then I moved from birds to human. That's how we had. Oh, I guess that's also one of the reasons why you moved from birds to human is just sort of. Yeah, my postdoc was ending and I had some choices. Like when I finished a postdoc, either look for PI positions. Back then I had a two-year-old too. Mm-hmm. And usually you open the world map and you see who needs a specialist on that field because when you get to that level of a specialization, right? Like the, the high scientist jobs, they are like, they could happen anywhere. They were an opening, right? And you know, it just happened that like, I didn't have the luxury because I had this small kid. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and also my husband has, so sometimes like your life takes you say, but, but it was a great choice for me. Like I, I really love what I do. Mm-hmm. And I found a job that I still, I was academic. I wanted like the things that I wanted to continue to do molecular. 
mm-hmm. an academic. And I really appreciate this new field because I can actually help people. Like evolution is really cool too. And I think it's really important to understand where it came from or like how life is about mm-hmm. to be. But like the, what I do now has a very practical application for people. It's very important for them to find. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's a very evolving field. I guess there's lots of new technologies coming out. Yeah, um, it has a lot of technology. Very popular now. It has a lot of like it, uh, it, uh, interesting things. And from the point of view of learning, and, and like you're always learning, doesn't matter what you're doing, science. There is always new techniques, there is new ways to analyze things and to comprehend like at the end of the day they have a lot of like envelope is, is different right humans and birds mm-hmm. but like the the way we are kind of formed and the way the things change is pretty similar right so it's a it's a very interesting um field i would say like it's it's amazing how much things we are learning now um and so you mentioned one of one of the techniques that you mentioned was dna barcoding um, so yes. what, what is DNA barcoding, kind of how do you... That is a very interesting project and it's a Canadian-led project. So that like it involved the whole world as a big uh, consortium started with a professor from Guelph. And he uh, he had this thought like that when you do phylogeny, like, with, like phylogeny basically makes you try to understand life comparing genes across different species, across different genus, genus of like birds or other groups. And uh, we always have to make a choice what gene to, to use, right, for that. Mitochondrial genes, they have like a very interesting advantage because it's a special genome, it's a separate genome from the whole genome we have. And it evolves a little faster because the machine, like it's almost like a bacteria genome that lives in our cells. And that is um, uh, one of the genes that was usually well studied in terms of evolution, especially across different groups. So he was thinking about um, creating a database of sequencing the same piece of the same genes across everything, not for evolution, because evolution, you need to use multiple genes and things. There was like some people in the field that was kind of like afraid, but the, the database would allow you to test a piece of a sample and see if what's, what species that is. Like, if, for instance, if you just have a feather of a bird and you want to know where that came from, you can just try to get some DNA of that sequence and you have a database that you could, could blast against. So everything we sequence, like even back then, we putting on NC, right? That was a database, but the difference is that every group will choose whatever gene they are interested on and you have this mix and match. Okay, maybe for parrots you have like cytochrome B, maybe for another species you have like it does other thing. So that doesn't allow you to get that one sample and, and match across everything. You have to create a database for everything you want to test against. So why do you need that? So in, in Brazil is a good example. There is a lot of people that traffic animals like, like wild animals because like people like to breed them at home in other countries or even in the same country. And they take like illegally from uh, eggs or small birds from the field. When they are caught, they don't want to tell where they got the samples from. And if you have a fragment of an egg or if you have a fragment of a, a tissue of some bird, where are you going to, how are you going to prove that they got that illegally is from wild species or not? 
So that's a good application, right? Like that you wanted to know, okay, is that from that endemic species that only live in that place? So his penalty will be a lot bigger than if he gets from a sample, from, from an animal that is not that endangered, has different rules. So that's what the, the, the DNA barcode is for, is actually to help people to identify samples that sometimes are tricky to identify. If someone like they get some plants with someone that they, that could be something illegal, they can just sequence that same piece, like a little piece of the DNA of that, the same piece that they have in the database, blast it against, and there you go. You find exactly, you can find the closest match to it, and then it can tell us a lot more. They use that like in sushi restaurants. Some people say they sell white tuna. It's a super rare type of fish, and they charge a lot for it. So like they, they validate some restaurants, and they found some discrepancies on what people were saying that they had versus what they actually were saying, selling. So there is a lot of applications, economical and like for preservations about like that. And it was um, a project that started here and like he involved researchers from all over the world to create a nice database and everything. That's very, very cool. And so was this database, I guess, just for birds at the time? No, no, there was for everything. Oh, it was for everything. <laughs> okay, that's very Life. cool. So for some, some species were more challenging than others, some groups, fungi, like this barcode gene that they chose have some introns, which would be pieces in between. So the advantage of like the barcoding is that you only, like the DNA barcode was based in the mitochondrial gene. And in the mitochondria, you only have genes that have the functional part, they don't have the introns, which is a part that is not very functional in the gene. Mm -hmm. Like that's usually skipped on. We have that in our genome. In the mitochondria, usually we don't have. However, fungi, for instance, is a species that does have a little bit of introns in the mitochondria. So that was a little challenging for them to create a database based on that because they wanted to skip those regions that are not important. But other than that, the database is for everything that they could because mitochondria is common to almost like all mm -hmm. the, that list, all the vertebrates, all the plants, all the fungi. So you might have like a few bacteria or virus that might not have like that gene. But, is very wide, like the, the range of species you can have there. And I guess since it's such a big collaboration, that's where all the samples came from, I guess different groups. Well, were... people could sequence in their own countries, but the okay. idea is that, like here, for instance, I work in the Rome, right back then, the museum. So the museum usually have a vouchers or specimens that are in the collection. Okay. So you they're creating a database based on things that they have, like. It, a sample that like morphological available or, or samples that are collected in a certain area for guaranteed collect. So the, the choice of samples for the database is important. It's nice if they have a sample deposited in the museum because you can use that as a reference, right? Someone questions that, that in particular sample, they can go and see where it was collected, like what was the morphological traits. Back in time, they don't have pictures for everything, but some of them have its skeleton, some of them have the skins, like some of them. So everything that you could actually associate it to a sample specimen was done. And the other countries would do the same. So each one would do the, the sequencing and the work in their own countries. But the database where the results are uploaded were the same with sequences and everything. So people could even download the traces and everything was, what is published. So, And is this something that 
anybody can access or is this only something that's like anybody can access if you have like a sequence of some co1 sequence of like a gene you want to know what you have you're growing your garden if you know to extract dna you put a sequence in there and it can retrieve what is the best match calls both database very very cool and sounds very very important and sounds like it has a lot of impact in a lot of different fields which is it does, always, it does. always very exciting um, so you also mentioned something called phylogenetics. Um, yes. I guess, could you explain what phylogenetics is? Is it similar to DNA barcoding? Is it a different field? Phylogenetics is, is, is slightly different. Phylogen, phylogenetics is try to understand the relationships across different species. So we are connected. We all share a common ancestor. Like it doesn't matter what species you think, your cat, your dog. <laughs> we all had a common ancestor somewhere in time. But sometimes you want to understand, for instance, among the falcon, which species of falcons are more close related to each other, right? Sometimes like things that we think because morphologically to us, they look more similar, like their feather patterns look more similar. We think, oh, those species probably separate more recently in time than this one and that other one that might look different. But remember, like sometimes we have convergence in nature. so. Some farms can converge because like they have some adaptive advantage. They, they might have an advantage to look in a certain way. So uh, genetics sometimes reveal very interesting things. So what do we do in phylogenetics? We try to see, uh, uh, we sequence different genes because each chromosome, uh, they might tell a different story where right? they came from different ancestors and might tell different stories. It's important to sequence pieces of genes from different areas of your genome, but sequence the same for different species. You're trying to understand how related they are. And then by comparing the genetic distances between those species, we can establish like phylogenetic relationships, okay, which species is more close related to each other. And then you can try to, like not, you don't do phylogenies just for actually get the relationships per se. We try to interpret that based in biogeography, okay? So how those three species came, they are more closely related, came to separate what event, geographical events separate them like in nature and things like that. And you can contextualize that with things that happen in time, which is really interesting. So it, it goes beyond just looking at genetics between species? It's yes, it kind of extrapolate to understand how the niches evolve. So one example, for instance, oyster catchers is one of the groups I studied. And oyster catchers, if you look across the whole world, like if, uh, they have very, they have two main patterns, okay? There are pied oyster catchers, which they have black and white plumage, and you have black oyster catchers. And if you go to New Zealand, you have these two types. You go to Australia, there is these two types. If you go to Brazil, there are these two types. If you go to Africa, you see those two ty different types. So the, the question is like, are all the black oyster catchers more related to each other or are the pile oyster catchers more related to each other? Uh, or not, or maybe they are more related because they're in the same continent, right? And that was a question you had. And actually the ones in each continental area, they are more close related. So the shape piled, uh, which is black and white or black, they converge because we don't know exactly why, but one of the hypotheses is that the, the one that has white parts, they can hide their nests better on the sand 
and they, when they are totally black, they can hide better than ashes on the stones, right? And that could be one of the reasons why they are like it, they have this pattern of conversions. But that is interesting because if you just use morphological comparisons, you might think a totally different scenario, right? So you kind of help us to understand. So then it goes to the next question. What is the genetic mutation that make them change for pile to black so easily, right? That happened so many times in, in history, right? And then we keep going on and finding different like uh, explanations to things and learning how the genome evolves. Mm -hmm. Very, very cool. I get, and it really explains how things are a lot more complicated in evolution than I guess. Than yeah, some, 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 some changes, they can, a little change, sometimes a little mutation can change a lot in, in, mm -hmm. a, in a body and also for diseases, if you think, right? Sometimes a small mutation can cause a big thing and how that, like in terms of diseases, you think how that causes a disease. In terms of evolution, how that allows like a species to adapt to a new environment, right? Mm -hmm. Is there? Do you use phylogenetics to study any human diseases currently? Phylogenetics is not much used for human diseases because they are more something you track changes that are kind of fixed in time, like things that actually favor some species to survive. While in human diseases, usually the mutations that we study are detrimental. So mutations are happening all the time, some of them for good, some for bad, right? So mm -hmm. if you think about that in the scale evolution, phylogenetics is the mutations that actually happen by chance, but they cause some advantage to a group that allows them to survive to, to a new environment and, like, and create a new species that is different from whatever background they came from. While the mutations that we study more in the, in, in the context of disease, are the ones more commonly, like most of the mutations are usually bad, right? Very few be selected as something that causes an advantage. Um, and so I guess your current research is more based on human diseases. Um, I, um, I study a lot of human diseases and how mutations in the genome can affect our health, right? And like, or not, we all carry so many mutations, right? Like, can I see mm -hmm. anyone's genome has thousands of variants and so a lot of them are rare mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of those things don't cause any harm. But so how do you how do you tease that apart? How do you figure out? It's very one? difficult. There is a lot of things we need to consider. So when you start to study a human genome, there are more than 5 million variants or mutations against the reference that you need to consider. So first thing we try to see, uh, the ones that are common out there, a lot of people have shared those mutations. Unlikely they are disease causing because, right, like you don't, you cannot think of mutation that 50% of people or 30% or even 1% of people, 1% is a lot of people, one mm -hmm. every 100 person. So if, if you have like mutations that are very common, they are very likely not disease causing. Mm -hmm. So then go to the second layer, which is those mutations are happening in a place that we know of in the, in the genome that is conserved. Conserved has a lot to do with evolution. Conserved is a field that goes from the evolution field to the disease field. So why, they, why is it important to be conserved? If, it is, if you have a mutation in a place that has been conserved, like has not been changed, usually genes, that means that people or animals that have mutations on that didn't survive. That's why the mutation rate on that spot is not 
too high, right? Not not fixed too high. So the observations are definitely another step we use to actually uh, keep variants that we'd like to consider for disease causing variants, variants that occur in places that are well conserved. Then you go to other layers, like there is some software that can predict if those mutations can cause a defect in a protein. So then we can try to see, okay, the ones in silico that in silico in the computer that we can predict that cause more problems, we keep. And then if the disease is recessive, that's a concept that's important too. If the disease is recessive, it means the parent is not sick and the kid or some kids in the family are affected. If it's recessive, it would be 25% of the kids. So it could be just one kid, could be two or four kids. Depends, like each one has a 25% of chance of getting it. Mm -hmm. So if it's recessive, it means you need to find two mutations on the gene. So sometimes you can eliminate a lot of variants if you just find one strong mutation on the gene. Like we cannot find a second one, then uh, we don't have a reason. Like we can eliminate those and keep just the genes that we... And it, 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 we keep going on, on that level priority. At some point, we need to actually use segregation with the disease to actually interpret if, if he, two mutations in a gene in case of recessive can be disease causing. So then you need to see if the father carry one mutation, the mother carry the other mutation because we have two genomes we are deployed. So we have a genome from our father and a genome from our mother. That's how we share traits of both. So if you have like a mutation in a gene that came from your mother and is bad, she's healthy because she carries another one healthy, but like you got the bad luck together, the bad luck. And if the, the same kid get a mutation that is bad from the father's side, he could be that not a different mutation doesn't need to be the same. Then the kid will have two proteins that doesn't work. One, because of the mutation that came from the mother. The other protein okay. too, because of the mutation that came from the father. And if, if they had the bad luck to have that mutations on the same gene, the kid cannot make that protein. And that can be the disease causing problem, mm -hmm. even if the parents don't have. So that's one of the ways we look into. So I guess sometimes, even though it's two different mutations, it kind of has the same effect. So, in our lab, that like it, it seems to be very rare, and it is very rare. <laughs> mutation, rare diseases are rare, and the diseases we, we study are rare. But within the rare, if you get the cohort or the number of patients that have those rare diseases, to have two different mutations, one from the father, one from the mother, is not that typical, especially in a place like it that has a multicultural, like Canada, right? That families mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily come from the same background. So then you can have like in that quite often. Sometimes it happened, the families came from the same community, and then you could have the same mutation coming from both sides of the families if it's a mutation that circulates in a certain population. So that's the recessive cases. There are cases we call dominant. Those cases usually for eyes, not as much aggressive, less syndromic. But then we have, like, for instance, a vision problem that the parent, one of the parents have, and 50% of the kids can have. Then just mutation in one of the genomes is enough. So only that parent can send a mutation. And then like you sometimes have different expressivity, the parent can have a more aggressive or the kid can have a more aggressive. It varies based on a lot of things, even environmental factors, but that's a dominant cases. And we also need to see if the mutation segregates according to the disease. So it's, after we identify the mutations, we need to see how 
what is the use for every member of the family. The, the, the better we can get more family members, the better, because we need to find if, like everyone that we have the disease, carry the two mutations and every healthy sibling carry just one of them because if a healthy sibling carry both, then it's not that gene, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we need to, to, to do this, those validations too. So it seems like the, it's a very complex and evolving field, um, genetics. Um, so what, where do you see kind of the field going in the future? Um, the field is going to a very interesting things because uh, genetic therapy was something that was like it talked about a lot in the past, but it was very difficult to actually go into practice, which is like people that have genetic mutations, usually they didn't have a lot of like a solution, right? People could identify is important for the family to know what is the chance of them to have another kid with the same problem. This could help them to do family planning. They could even like, you know, some of the descendants could know if they are like carriers and they could decide them to plan their families accordingly, but it didn't have a lot of like a, a lot of solution. The, the identified limitations could help them also to know if other tissues could get involved. Sometimes they have an eye problem, but it could affect the kidney too. And they're not seeing like on, for specialists on that field. So it's important to know the diagnostic, but it don't have too much to go. But now these days, like it's, it's a lot, is getting a lot more interesting because it's starting to appear some genetic therapies that are being possible. Eyes are very interesting field because the eyes are is an organ very separate from the whole body, from the rest of the body. And you can do a treatments that are very localized and you have two eyes, right? So mm -hmm. <laughs> the first clinical trials, they usually test in one eye and see if the patient has a rejection. So these days there are some therapies that actually are active uh, RP65 is a gene that people are actually treating now. It's still quite expensive, maybe not accessible yet for everybody, but they can inject like, like some the gene that the person is missing behind the retina mm -hmm. and the cells take that in. And even some patients that lost vision are recovering because sometimes the cells are not dead yet and they can recover from like a little bit. So they are not even inspecting that. They're inspecting just to stop the progression of the diseases for some cells. Mm -hmm. But they actually see some reversal of the phenotype, which is amazing. Very, very cool. Very, very so cool. it's a field that is actually starting to, to appear. So that's the good part of it. But the diagnostic mm -hmm. itself is a very important thing for them because um, not knowing what causes the disease is, is a lot more difficult to deal with that. Mm -hmm. To know and know what is expected and know like what is the expected progression, right? And if, it, if there are some palliative things that can help them, mm -hmm. if they're going to lose totally the vision, if they, you know, the progression could be very slow sometimes. So it's important for everything yeah. to know. So I guess the first priority is first identify what the disease is exactly. and, then, and then see how we can treat it potentially in the future. Yes. Um, so with that, we're, we're slowly coming to a, a close and we're slowly running out of time. Um, just one last question. Uh, what advice would you give to some of the young scientists out there that are hoping to pursue research? There is a lot of good research going on, like in Toronto and Canada is one of the great countries to do science. It is a field that is exciting and get, get informed a lot about what is going on before deciding your path because um, it has a lot of like a, 
uh, it has a lot of possibilities and the sky is the limit these days, like especially in our field, pyro data is coming along. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing, like the, the amount of data is getting so hard is good to learn some coding. Too. <laughs> so yeah. don't, don't skip coding class because you're into the science, like if those things are important as well. <laughs> yeah. And get open to know what's going on. Like for instance, when I started university, they asked who wants to the botany, right? Like in my biology course. Mm -hmm. And almost no one raised their hands, but after they got to know plants, a lot of people chose to. So, like, it don't be, be open to everything in, in the fields of interest because sometimes you might get in love with something that you have no idea. Mm -hmm. So, some very good advice. So, just try different things, I guess, and try different things and to, learn to coding. talk to people and know and get informed about the field. Like, if those podcasts probably is a great time to know different aspects of science people can do, right? And get to read like about what kind of sciences out there in like a scientific journals or that not mm -hmm. fancy ones like the, the ones put by the public right try to get informed what is out there well that sounds like a, a great place to stop as well so thank you so much for joining us dr tavares today um it's been really lovely speaking with you um is there any last remarks that you'd like to say for everyone <laughs> I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I think I, I love science, like so. I, I really do recommend that. Mm -hmm. But do what your heart tells you. The things that like about Canada, don't, don't feel forced. Don't let anyone force your career. You mm -hmm. know, like it, a place like this, like Canada, allows you to to have a good life in whatever path you choose. So make sure you follow your heart and not a career that might give you money or. <laughs> mm -hmm. Follow your passion. Passion. Um, so with that, thank you for joining us, everyone, and we'll catch you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye.